0: Around 80 years ago in a remote village in Papua New Guinea on uh, the Ramu River, which is a really large river about as wide as the the Mississippi, um, there was a little boy and his mother kicked him awake, nudged him awake in the morning because there are universals and, and little boys not wanting to get up is one of them. And uh, she woke him up, and, and she told him, I need you to go and get for us um, some beetle nuts, some some buai, which are these little nuts that everyone in Papua New Guinea likes to chew. And they're, they grow at the top of really large trees, uh, 20 to 30 foot tall, but the, the trunk is only about that, that thick. And so little boys are the perfect uh, avenue to go get them. They just shimmy on up, grab them, and then come down. And so she said, you know, I need you to go to, to go get some because we're running low. But go by the jungle road. Go by the jungle road. Don't go by the river. And so he gathered up his brothers and and some other friends, and they waited until she was looking the other way. And then they jumped into some little dugout canoes and went floating down the river. Because like all little boys, they're also incredibly lazy. And they thought, you know, we'll just let the current take us. And so they were in these little dugout canoes. They're really, really narrow, about that that narrow and about that wide. And it is, it's is—it's literally impossible for someone of my size to successfully sit in one and not flip over. I've tried many times. And so they floated down the river. And, and they were letting the, the current take them. And they had one little paddle in, in behind them, just kind of uh, making sure they stayed toward, toward the middle of the river. And they're just going on down, just lazing in the sun, talking... But they didn't hear and they didn't see the canoes that were hidden on the edges of the banks and the men that were hidden there. And as they went, went by them, they didn't hear as those men shoved off into the river behind them. And as they went down the river a little bit longer, they came to a place where there was mangrove swamps on both sides, meaning there weren't any banks, and so there wasn't anywhere to escape. And those men made themselves known, then they started yelling, and it didn't take long for them to gather up these eight little boys And they took them further downstream to their village. These are are two different groups, uh, warring groups, different languages. And and so they they took these boys captive and they took them to the village. And when they got there, they brought all eight boys up and lined them up in the middle of the village so that the whole community could see. And what they were doing was showing what the, the catch was for the day. And they have to do this. It's really important that they do this so that everybody knows the correct, uh, the correct portion, so that, so that nobody is not given less. Because these boys are getting ready to be murdered and then cooked and eaten. And as they're standing there, fearful, not sure what's going on, an old woman who didn't have any children of her own, she walked up and, and she put her hand on one of them and said, This one, this one's my son. And she grabbed him and she just walked away. And nobody said anything as she led that boy away because she was married to a elder of the village, and they didn't have any kids. So fine, that's 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 their son now. Those other boys were murdered and and, and consumed because that's the way things worked in Papua New Guinea back then. But that little boy went home with her, and she grew up in the house of an elder of a community of the village, and she listened. She learned, or he learned, the stories from his adopted father. And he grew up to become a leader. And in his lifetime, he saw a lot of change happen. They went from considering themselves to be the only humans on the face of the planet, that everyone around them, even though they looked human, were in fact animals, which is why it was okay to do what they did to those boys, because they were animals. And that's what you do with animals. You hunt them and eat them. And and they, they, they realized that the world was bigger. World War II came, and they saw that there was people that looked different. And these other people had a lot of stuff, and they had a lot of power. And then later, some uh, missionaries came and started a church, and they realized, oh, this is, this is the religion of these other people. And, and so there must be something to their religion because they have all of the power and all the stuff. But then in 1984, uh, somebody came from Pioneer Bible Translators and said, I'm going to translate this holy book, the Bible. We're going to translate it into your language, which made a whole, whole lot of sense to them. To sense to them because they're the only people on the planet. And their language is the only language spoken by human. So, uh, of course, this really important book needs to be in their language. But that boy, now grown up into a leader, he was really impressed. And he realized this was really important. And he turned to his oldest son, Benny. And he said to Benny, you make this happen. No matter what it takes, you push and you make this happen. Now, Benny isn't exactly a a bright person. He's not the smartest one. So he wasn't a translator, but he was in the background for the past 33 years pushing when everybody else was a little bit too tired and when everybody else wanted to quit, when it was just getting to be too long and too hard. It was Benny who said, nope, we have to go a little bit longer. And then just a couple weeks ago, we were able to uh, uh, see this happen. After 33 years of work, they have... God's word, New Testament, in their language. And what's really cool, Chris mentioned uh, uh, your cell phone earlier. There, there's over a thousand translations in the, of, the, of the Bible into the English language, and many of them are available on your phone. But this one is actually avi- available on your phone too. If you go to uh, a U version, the, the app. If you go to languages, you have to click all languages because there's over a thousand languages there, and you'll find uh, com m-m-b. K, O, you can go, wrong. but the M is important. It's not B. You're hearing uh, Baraina Com, but there's an M in front. Mm, Baraina Com. Um, and this is really cool because smartphones are actually a thing in Papua New Guinea. Those guys dancing, every single one of them had a smartphone in the back of their pocket. <laughs> It's crazy, it's crazy, but they, we get really, really cheap smartphones straight from China there, and so now they are able to have this. The audio isn't available on the version app yet, but we have apps that we've distributed out there that actually have audio connected to the text, so it's really cool the things that are happening, but what's really, really amazing about this story is that wasn't the end. Uh, the, the guy that was really, really close up on, he has the best smile, he, it was really, really close up, that's Benny. And he was, uh, we called him the chairman of the board because he was the one that actually made the decisions. He was the one that actually pushed. And when we were getting close to finishing this book, we said to this team and uh, the teams, you saw Stephen, the primary translator and some other guys. And we said to him, well, what's next? The New Testament's almost done. You've been working on it for 33 years. What's next? And, and we were thinking Old Testament. We were thinking other translation things that they could do for their own people. And they came back and they said, well, you know, there, there's all these other groups that we, li- we live in. And, and we used to hunt them. We used to, we used to eat them. But now we know, we know better. And we shouldn't have anything more until they have what we have. I was able to be in the house with Benny, in Benny's house, when he first shared the story of his father. And he said to me, Brian, I've got family up the river that I I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I haven't been there. I haven't visited them. But my father's original family is just up river, and I want to take this to them. And so I was able to help Benny get together a team and go and visit the Abu people group, another people group in Papua New Guinea, another language, wholly different language, um, and start to talk to them about starting a program in their language. And so right now we're actually in the process of selecting translators and training translators from that language group. But Benny is going to become the, the, the pusher, the chairman for them as well because he's a part of both language groups. So we work in Papua New Guinea, which is a small um, island north of Australia. There's 832 different languages spoken in the island, which is a lot. And we're talking about languages here. We're talking about very different languages as different from like some of them are related the way you would think of like Spanish and Portuguese. But some of them are completely different, as different as English is from Chinese. Um, so there are just is so, so many languages there. And, and the people, you've seen a good uh, de- depiction of what the people look like, what, the way they live. Um, and so Pioneer Bible Translators works to bring God's word to each of them. The people groups are small. These are some of the smallest language groups in the, on the planet. Uh, Berenikam is spoken by 6,000 people. We work with a group that's, that is under 1,000 speakers. And so these are really, really small groups, but we don't believe that they're insignificant even though they're, they're, they're small. We think there's another 300 languages left to serve in Papua New Guinea. And we think that Pioneer Bible Translators is responsible for about 80 of those. Right now, we only work in 16. We've been in Papua New Guinea for 40 years, and we only work in 16 languages. So we have a lot of, of growth left to do. And I, right now, I'm serving as the director. We originally went to do language survey, which is what that first video was about. Um, but, and we did that for a little while, my wife and I. But now I'm actually serving as director, meaning that I'm in, I'm in charge of, of all of it. Um, and so we have 33 missionaries working in those 16 languages, 14 kids, and uh, just a little under 200 national volunteers like Benny, like Stephen, who are serving their own people group, and that's what we do is try and train those people to be able to do to serve their own people through translation, through literacy, and through uh, through scripture impact to see transformed lives in all of these places. As director, I get to see all these stories. That's one of the most fun part of the jobs. I get to have my fingers in everything. Some of the translators are out in the village, and they're really focused in heavily on what's going on in their group. But I get to hear reports from everybody. And so I get to meet people like Benny. I get to see these things. And what's really amazing is that we see how God is moving in ways that that we can't even begin to plan for. You see, we have five-year plans. We have two-year plans. You know, we're trying to get things in in place. Uh, But then Benny takes me into his house and tells me a story. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, what's the point of even planning when God is the one that's doing these things? Because if I were to ask you know, us to come up with some sort of plan to reach two people groups in the middle of Papua New Guinea, none of us would even consider the idea of a story that involves cannibalism, of a child being abducted and then adopted into a leader's family, and then coming full circle with him going back to his people, his original people. But those are the things that God gets to do. I recently uh, was brought, uh, brought to my attention a story in the Bible that kind of demonstrates this. If you wanted to turn to Acts chapter 8, I'm just going to tell you, through, go through the story and not read the whole thing. But in Acts, Acts chapter 8, we get, uh, the entire chapter is about a guy named Philip. When Jesus died and, and rose again and, and went into heaven, the church was started, and it was his disciples who were the leaders. And it started to grow exponentially. And it started to grow so much that there weren't enough leaders for the people and at one point earlier in the book of Acts, they the, they say, "Okay, well, let's go ahead and pick seven guys, seven guys who are going to serve and serve the people." And so they pick seven people, and Philip is one of them. And what's funny is, is he was chosen to serve, but immediately in Acts chapter eight, he immediately goes and he becomes the first real evangelist. He goes up to another place, and when he he's up there and he gets some people interested in Jesus, and as soon as other people start to come and lead, he leaves again. And at the end of Acts chapter 8, God tells Philip, go to the desert road, you know, road in the middle of nowhere where literally nobody lives, go there, and Philip goes. And that's really interesting. It's always convicting to me the number of times in the Bible when God tells people to go somewhere, and they just go. And God never tells them why. He just says, go over there, and they go. And I, I have two little kids. Ray is four and Will is two. And if I ever ask them to do anything, why? You know, and, and the whole because I said so just doesn't work. Everybody who's a parent knows this. But do we have faith to just go? When God says go, to just go. So he goes and he sees in the distance a chariot. And God tells him, go to that chariot. And so he goes to this chariot. And in this chariot is a, an Ethiopian eunuch. A man from the kingdom of Ethiopia, he had just visited Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, he bought himself a nice scroll. And he was reading that scroll on his way home. And in those days, they would read out loud because usually only a couple people knew how to read. And they would read out loud so that everybody could hear it. And he was reading from the book of Isaiah, which is in your Bible, uh, chapter 53. And Philip is there kind of running next to the uh, chariot. And he says to the eunuch, do you understand this? And the eunuch says, no. How can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? And Philip says, well, I can explain it to you. So he gets into the chariot with the eunuch, and he starts to explain. He starts to preach a sermon off of Isaiah 53. How many of us, you know, assume, you, know you could just do a five-point sermon right now from Isaiah 53? You know, Philip, he knew, he knew the Bible. He knew God's word in an amazing way. And so he begins to explain Jesus, who Jesus was, off of Isaiah 53. And then as they're going along, the eunuch says, hey, there's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip says, well, if you believe, yes, let's get baptized. And so they get down from the chariot. They're baptized. The eunuch is baptized. And then the Bible says that that Philip is just taken away. God just takes him away. And the eunuch goes on his way. And I really love this story because it's a great uh, story of, uh, about how we could do evangelism. A lot of times it gets a little scary to do evangelism. And you'd think that the guy whose you know, job it is to go into the jungle and tell people about Jesus, you'd think that that would, be, that would make it easy for me, but it's not. But Philip lays out a really nice way and a nice way to interact with uh, evangelism because he starts by, by listening. He starts and he listens to the eunuch. He hears what the eunuch is talking about. And he says, hey, do, do you know what's going on with that? And so he speaks into what the eunuch is currently thinking about. And I think a lot of times when I was a kid, I was told, here's all the tracks. You know, here's, the, here's the things that you can say. Here's the scripts that you can say to bring, bring people to Jesus. And, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes if we were to listen to people, And just talk about how Jesus relates to where they are right then and there. We might have a little bit more success. And that's what Philip does. And then Philip, he knew his Bible. That's the scary part about listening and trying to engage people where they are. That means that you have to have a pretty bigger grasp as to what the bible can say but the 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 beauty of this kind of thing is it's more relational and if you don't have answers you don't have to have answers right then and there you go home and you call chris say hey chris well give me a verse give me something you know i need something here and then you go back and you see him the next time at the coffee shop or whatever so philip he he knew he knew his bible he knew it really well and that's always convicting to me again something you know my job to you know translate the thing you think i'd know it but you know it's hard sometimes the really amazing thing, though, about this is Philip, at the end, he didn't do anything at the end. It was the eunuch who said, hey, there's water. Shouldn't I be baptized? Philip didn't force any, any decision on the eunuch. It was the Holy Spirit that worked in the eunuch's life and said, get baptized. And he said, oh, okay, I, I, there's water. I should get baptized. I read it right there. I should get baptized. And Philip said, sure, let's do that. And the reason that this is really important for us to remember is because it's God that is working to gather his children. It's not, it's not us. The story of Benny and the story of Philip is a story about how God is constantly maneuvering things to reach his people. And you might be wondering, why is there an Ethiopian eunuch going to Jerusalem in the first place? Or is he Jewish? That, no, why was he there? You'd have to turn back in your Bible really, really far to figure out why. You go all the way back to First Kings chapter 10. And in First Kings chapter 10, there is a queen that comes to visit Jerusalem. In Jerusalem at the time was King Solomon, the son of King David. And uh, God came to him in a dream and said, hey, do you want wisdom? Do you want wealth? Or, or, or do you want victory over your enemies? And Solomon said, give me wisdom so that I could rule your people rightly. And God said, ding, 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 you win. You get all three. And so Solomon was a powerful, powerful ruler in the ancient world. So powerful that there was a queen in the south in the country called Sheba that said, there's no way. There's no way he's this wealthy. There's no way he's this wise. And she went herself to go visit. And she gets there and she sees it and she says, you know what? I didn't believe, but yep. You are powerful. You are wealthy. It's, it's amazing what's happening here. And then she, then she left. From outside the Bible, we have evidence to, to indicate that when she got home, she started regularly sending emissaries to Jerusalem just to maintain connection between the kingdoms. And that happened over the course of a 1,000 years. There's a 1,000 years difference from when Solomon was king to when we're talking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And over the years, the kingdom of Sheba moved a little bit, and it changed its name into Ethiopia. And so this man is just one of a, a long line of emissaries that was going. And it just so happened that when he was coming home, a man came and ran next to his chariot. See, God had been planning this event for a thousand years. And what happened after that Ethiopian eunuch left? Well, he went, he went back home, and he started sharing with people what he learned And we learn from outside the Bible that probably the Apostle Matthew went to Ethiopia to visit existing churches. He didn't go to plant churches in Ethiopia. He went to visit existing churches that this Ethiopian eunuch planted. And the longest running church in existence on the planet, the one that can go back the farthest, is actually the Ethiopian Orthodox Church that was started by this eunuch. And there's still Ethiopian Orthodox Church over in Ethiopia today. What's really amazing about this story, which is really the first cross-cultural transmission of the gospel, meaning somebody from one culture told somebody from another culture about Jesus, it's done by a guy named Philip. But Philip doesn't look like the Philips you, you, you probably are thinking of. Philip is a Middle Eastern man, born and raised in Jerusalem and the very first person that he goes to talk to from a different culture is actually a black african and the the longest running church in existence exists in sub-saharan africa when people read the bible and come from the conclude come away with the conclusion that god somehow favors one people group more than another they're just not reading their bible it's just not there philip knew that and before, before the apostles, the guys who sat at Jesus' feet, started doing cross-cultural ministry, Philip went first. It's really really amazing story. And then he just kind of disappears. He reappears one, uh, one more uh, time later in the book of Acts when uh, Paul comes and stays with him. Just amazing because Philip was just a regular guy at church. He was just a regular guy at the pew. He, he, he didn't have personal connection with Jesus. He wasn't there trained by Jesus for the three years that Jesus was on earth. He just came to church. He was faithful, and people said, hey, we need somebody to serve. You, you, you've come every day, every Sunday for the last couple of years, and you've set up the tables. Would you, would you take on a more formal position and, and really serve us? And then he went, and, and he changed the world. That's what we're trying to do in Papua New Guinea is find these stories that God is putting in place decades before, years before, to to see how his kingdom is moving, how his kingdom is growing, and then to try and be a part of it. So out in the um, foyer area, there is a a place for you to grab uh, a little prayer card, which is a little picture of us. Uh, my family, my wife, and my kids, and if you do grab one of those, you can put it in your Bible, or you can use your new Venture magnet to hold it to your fridge, and uh, pray for us when you, when you see it, and, and just, just give a little prayer for it. But the other really uh, a big thing that's shifting in our lives is when we go back, uh, my family is going to be adopting a Papua New Guinean. We haven't met the child yet. We don't know who the child is. The child may not even be born yet. But in Papua New Guinea, we're seeing a breakdown in society where before there wasn't a single orphan. Ten years ago, an orphan didn't exist in the country because any any child that somehow didn't have parents was immediately absorbed into somebody else's family. And it went the other way, too. If a family, if a, if a, if a, a husband and wife didn't have kids, they were just given some kids, you know, I've got eight, you know, here's three of them. And that's, you know, it's just the way it worked. Kids just got moved around. If you only had two little girls, they would give you a couple boys because your life was just too easy and the girls were too quiet until they turned 13. Um, And so that's starting to break down. Um, People are starting to focus in on their nuclear families, which is a totally Western outside idea, but they're starting to to say, hey, I've only got so much resources, I'm going to invest that in my actual children and the children that, that have come from me, as opposed to where they used to just look around and just kind of more communally live and see who needs what. Um, and so suddenly, in the last 10 years, we've got orphans. And there's no orphanages in the country, so every abandoned child is a crisis. And some of these children now are starting to be uh, sold across the border into Indonesia for about $30. Um, some of them are being brought into families, but it looks more like slavery than adoption in more in village settings. <laughs> So my wife and I, and it really hit Hannah's heart in October, um, we were just praying about, well, what can we do about that? You know, we have another work, we have another job, what are we going to be able to do about it? And she came home and she said, we need to adopt a kid. Like, okay, well, we can't do much, but we can open up our home to, to one child, maybe two children, who and just try and get them out of a bad situation. What that means, though, is that our living expenses are going to go up to cover the adoption, to cover the additional mouth to feed. And so over the past month, we've been visiting different churches, people that know us, people that don't know us, and trying to raise a little bit more financial support. We live in Papua New Guinea off of the generous contributions of people churches and individuals. Um, And so people give regularly, sometimes they give monthly, sometimes they give quarterly, sometimes they give annually, but they make a commitment to give and we trust on that and we go. And and everyone's been faithful to us, uh, but now we need just a little bit more um, money. Um, So if you're interested in talking a little bit more about that, please come talk to us. Um, On the prayer card, there's a link at the bottom That is where you can go and do electronic giving. And on that link, there's also uh, another link to the blog that my wife writes. That would be a great way to keep in touch with us. We also have a monthly uh, newsletter that goes out. Um, So there's a sign-up sheet if you want to put your email address. We'll get you on that. And that's where we tell stories like the story that that I told about Benny. Um, but it is—it's a privilege to to serve in Papua New Guinea, and the the people who support us—they are actively involved in the creation uh, of these kinds of books. We have 16 more to do, and another 80 after that, and we have a lot a lot of work to do. But it's a, it's a privilege and a joy to to be there and to work with these people. One more story about how God is is moving. Um, two years ago. There was a drought in Papua New Guinea. Now, Papua New Guinea is tropical island paradise. Okay, we have rainy season and we have rainier season. Okay, so for it not to rain for six months, it's a crisis. This was during El Nino, which was probably caught you in the news cycle. You probably did hear about that a little bit. But in Papua New Guinea, it didn't rain for six months, and everybody was hurting. But one of the groups that we work with, the Adoramu, they live on a plateau that doesn't have any access to a river. And they don't have access to the ocean. And so their water sources dried up really quickly. And their gardens, where they grow all their food, where they eat, ha- started to die off really quickly. It looked like, it looked like Africa, where the, the ground is, is, is so dry, it, it's, it's cracking apart and everything. And people started to die from malnutrition, uh, kids and, and elderly. And so we got together with, with IDES and some other organizations and was able to raise enough money to buy every family a bale of rice. Uh, about 50 pounds of rice was the idea. So there was 12 villages total that we were targeting. And uh, so every village was responsible to send in a flatbed truck because this area has some access to roads. So the, every village sent in a flatbed truck. And they, they all came on the same day, and they met us at the back of a store there in the town that, that I live in. And we loaded each truck with the exact number of families that was in each village. And so I was there, I was counting because I was the one signing the check at the end. And and the guy who owns the store, he was counting every one that went on because I was buying from him. And then we had uh, two uh, Adoramu leaders counting because they knew every village, and they knew the number that every village was supposed to have. And then we also had um, a guy visit from Dallas from our office in PBT, and he was a controller. He's our PBT International Controller, which I didn't know anything about that. I'm not a numbers person. But his job is literally to count. That's what he does. He counts money. And so he was counting. So we had five people counting, and we put rice on 12 trucks, and then they, they all left. A couple weeks later, I went back out to visit – that area, just to see how things were. And I was sitting with some of the leaders, and one of the leaders looked at me, and he says to me, Brian, you need to go back to school. I said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, every single truck that we sent out, all 12 of them, arrived with more rice than what we put on them. Some of them had enough extra rice to give more to larger families or to families that didn't have a father or, you know, somehow needy, a little bit more needy. One village on the edge had so much extra that they were able to give rice to a village that was outside of our target area because you've got to draw a line somewhere. So they gave, they gave a bunch extra. But right smack in the middle of the group, a village got exactly double. In this particular village, all, the, all 11 other villages have some sort of church in them, and, and they're trying to be Christians. They're trying to understand what's going on. But this village in the middle, they had given up. They said enough with Christianity. They tore down the churches. They kicked out the, the church leaders that were there, and they went back to traditional belief system, an animistic, spiritual, worshiping ancestors kind of a thing. Because they just weren't getting anything out of Christianity. They wanted material gain. And then along comes a truck filled with rice when they are all very hungry that has doubled the amount of rice that it was supposed to have. And they sent their leaders up to the village where our guys work, the national guys that work with us. And they said, where, what, what's going on? Why, why is there so much extra rice? And those guys said, because God hasn't forgotten you the way you've forgotten him. And they said, come, come down to our village and, and teach us about this God. And for every Sunday for the last two years, they've gone down and have used Scripture in their language to restart a church that is now vibrant and growing in that community. All because of what God can do. Not because of what I can do. I can't double rice. I can't make rice appear from anything. But that is, that's, that's a a miracle that we're talking about here. And this is the God that, that you serve. This is what he can do. And it's really easy to hear my stories and think about Papua New Guinea and all that stuff happening over there. And, and if you want to be a part of that ministry, come talk to us, financially support us, pray for us, come yourself and be a part of what's happening in Papua New Guinea. But more importantly, this is what God can do around you and your life right here. Start listening to the people around you, your friends, your family, random people that you're next to in the coffee shop, the bus, whatever, and see what God is doing in your life. And the the, the beauty of this idea of God moving everywhere is that you don't have to be smart about it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to plan. You don't have to figure out, you know, how can I say this, that. That's not your role. God is the ultimate planner. God's the one that's doing stuff. You just have to go and start talking to people. That's the hardest part. And that's the God that, that, that we serve. The one that looks down on this world and sees people in Papua New Guinea whose parents were cannibals. Or sees people here in Wilmington and looks at all of them and says, that, that's my child. And his, his, his heart is just desperate to reach them. And you can be a part of that in Papua New Guinea or in here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just being you. You are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. You are loving. Lord, it would be terrifying to have a God that was all-powerful and all-knowing but not loving. Lord, you use your power. You use your knowledge to love us, to reach out to us, Lord. And we know that you are working in ways around us that we can't even begin to comprehend there are, are things that you have set in place many, many years, Lord, and, and they are coming to fruition around us, Lord. I pray that you would give us the courage to be a part of that, to say the, say the words that we need to say, to, to do our small part in, in your plans. Give us wisdom and knowledge to do those things, Lord, and I pray for this church as it grows that you would use it here in, in Wilmington, that it would be a light for you here. Um, Among all the people of Wilmington, the the rich and the elite, the homeless and the middle class, Lord, that everyone would find a home uh, here at this church, Lord, uh, among your people and with you, Lord, and that your kingdom would grow, that it would grow here, that it would grow in Papua New Guinea, and that your word and your love would be known by all. And we pray in your son's name.